Today is the third message in our current preaching series entitled Intervention. And if you haven't been here along the way, just to let you know that for the purpose of this series, we've defined an intervention as an occasion on which a person is confronted in an attempt to persuade them to address a critical issue uh, both in our individual lives and our lives as a church. And uh, the scriptural basis of our series is the seven messages communicated in the seven churches in chapters two and three of the book of Revelation. And we've said all along through this series that we believe that we have an important message to share, and the Bible calls that message the gospel, which simply means good news. We've been called to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we want people to hear the good news. We want them to respond to the good news. We believe that we live in a world that desperately needs the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we've been uh, tracking through uh, this series, we've said that if we desire the wor- our world to hear the message of the gospel, the good news, we must begin by first hearing the message that God has for us, the church. And we've said that if we refuse to listen, if we refuse to hear and respond to the message that God by the Holy Spirit is communicating to us, his church, how can we ever expect our world to listen to the message that we are attempting to communicate to them? And so it's important for us to understand that our lives, how we live our lives, who we are, is every bit as important in communicating the good news as the words that we use to share the gospel. In fact, even more. In our opening message, we began with a brief overview of the book of Revelation. Last week, or two weeks ago, we we considered um, the message to the first of the seven churches, Ephesus. And so today we're going to be considering the second message to the second church, which is Smyrna. Smyrna was located approximately 60 kilometers due north of Ephesus. It was a beautiful city. In fact, it was known as the beauty of Asia. It was a large city that boasted paved streets, which was very unusual at the time. The main street was called Golden Street. It ran east to west from its famous seaport. The temple of of Sibeli, Uh, The mother of of the earth, who she was worshipped to be, was anchored at one end of the Golden Street, and the temple to Zeus, who was known as the king of the gods, anchored the other end. And in between these two major temples, a variety of other temples filled in along the way of this Golden Street. Smyrna was a center for emperor worship. It was a wealthy city. Learning flourished there, especially in the areas of science and medicine. And it was a free city like Ephesus, self-governing. It was an old city. In fact, it was built in approximately 3000 BC. It's the claimed home of Homer, the famous poet. It's the only city of the seven mentioned in chapters two and three of Revelation that is still in existence today, known as Izmir in Turkey. Not much is known about the church in Smyrna from a scriptural standpoint but it was most likely founded by Paul when he was ministering in Ephesus. Of the seven churches, only two will notice 
are without a call to accountability and rebuke for something that is wrong that needs fixing. And Smyrna is one of these two. Our scripture today is Revelation chapter 2, 8 to 11. We just read it. Thank you, Allison, for sharing that. And so as we look at this church, we'll notice that the message to this particular church follows a different outline than we saw in the outline in the church of Ephesus. In this particular message, it focuses on their current circumstances. It informs them of a coming struggle in the near future, and it reminds them of the ultimate eternal implications of their struggles. And so we're going to walk through what Jesus is saying by means of the Holy Spirit to this particular church this morning and how it might relate to us. We begin with the current reality. In the last sermon on Ephesus, we said that Christians were a new, widely misunderstood group in this culture. They seemingly came out of nowhere and were very different than everybody else in terms of morality, in terms of worship, love, and faith. The Christian community was made up of people from both Gentile and Jewish backgrounds, which was unusual. And the result is that this created problems for these Christians from both Gentiles and Jews. They had it coming from both sides. Now, Jesus makes it very clear again here from the very beginning that he knows. He is paying attention. He's aware of the persecution. He knows what's happening in this church. Emperor worship at this time was compulsory for every person who occupied a Roman territory. Once a year, each person had to burn incense on the altar of Caesar and declare aloud, Caesar is Lord. Once they did, they'd be given a certificate. Well, Christians obviously refused to do this because they were unwilling to declare anyone but Jesus to be Lord. And so it created problems for them. The degree of persecution for refusing to worship Caesar was dependent on how zealous the particular city was in terms of emperor worship. And as we've already established, Smyrna was exceptionally zealous in the area of emperor worship. And so consequently, the persecution in Smyrna was intense. In fact, Jesus uses the word persecution here, which means to be pressed and squeezed like grapes in a wine pressed. It carried the idea of burden and weight that exerts such intense pressure that it actually crushes. And so as we listen to what Jesus is saying, there are two groups that are responsible for this particular persecution. The first is the Gentiles. Gentile citizens themselves were known to place sanctions on Christians so they couldn't buy the basic necessities of life. The pagan mobs would pillage the property of Christians, and the result for them would be poverty. The word poverty that Jesus uses here means abject poverty, possessing nothing, to to not have any material possessions of value. And Jesus says, I know that you are poor, that you are living in poverty, even though you are rich spiritually. They're an an exceptionally poor church in the midst of an extremely wealthy city for no other reason than their loyalty to Jesus. The second group were the Jews. The Jewish community is, uh, was always acknowledged and permitted to continue under Roman rule. 
the Romans looked at Judaism as a long-established religion, and they recognized them and allowed them to continue to function within, you know, under their leadership. But Christianity was a different story. Christianity was new. And the Jewish community itself viewed Christianity in Smyrna. These, these people are her heretics. They're, they're rejecting the Jewish faith. And so often the Jews surpassed the pagans in their hate and their zeal against Christians. And of course, we don't need to look any further than the crucifixion of Jesus to see that. It was not the Romans who were trying to have Jesus crucified. In fact, the Romans were pushing against it, but it was the Jews. Because of the persecution from the Jews, Christians eventually stopped worshiping in the synagogues. They continued to do that, even though they put their faith in Christ in the beginning. But as time went on, they stopped doing that because there was just so much persecution. And so they instead formed their own ecclesia, their own assembly, gathering, their own churches outside of the synagogues. Now, there were some who claimed to be Jews because of race and religion, but who were not considered to be true sons of Abraham. And they were the cause of some of the greatest persecution against these Christians. And Jesus reminds them that in the midst of this persecution coming from these Gentiles and these Jews, he's aware, he's paying attention, he's with them, and he's comforting them in the midst of them. That is their current reality. But then he begins to talk about their future struggles. Things are bad for these Christians in Smyrna at this moment. But Jesus tells them something that they don't want to hear. The next part of the message is something they don't want to hear. And he says it's going to get worse before it gets better. And it's this statement is it's what makes this particular intervention in the letter to the church in Smyrna unique. The intervention is not driven by a problem that needs attention and acknowledgement and change. It's driven by the need for the difficult revelation that there's more pain to come before things improve. Now, it's important because it provides valuable insight to those who are suffering currently so they can understand the reality and be better prepared. The message that their persecution will not be ending anytime soon well, in fact, in fact, it's going to intensify before it's over, is not what they want to hear, but it's what they need to hear. They need to know. They need to hear it, and Jesus wants them to know. I know how bad it is, but it's going to get worse, and you need to know that. Interventions are about communicating what needs to be heard, not what someone wants to hear. And so he tells them that some of them are even going to be imprisoned for their loyalty to him. It's important to understand in the Roman world, prison in itself was not the end punitive measure. In our society, we send people to prison. That's their punishment. Not so in the Roman world. Roman prisons were holding cells. You were just there temporarily until you had your hearing and your trial. And usually one of two things would then happen. You would either be executed or you would be beaten and released. Now, there's some important details that Jesus reveals here regarding the persecution that they haven't experienced yet, but they're going to have to face. The first thing Jesus reveals is the source. 
Jesus makes it very clear that the source of the persecution that these Christians in Smyrna will face, the source is Satan himself. That he is ultimately the one responsible for inflicting this persecution. Jesus said the Jews who persecuted them were from a synagogue of Satan. Jesus was revealing that Satan was the ultimate source behind this persecution. It originates with him. He's the one who will intensify their pain. He's the one who will cause some of them to be taken to prison. And so while they see certain people, groups, and individuals inflicting persecution on them, Jesus wants them to understand that it is ultimately Satan who is behind the persecution. The second thing is the purpose. Jesus reveals that Satan's purpose for their persecution is to test them. Now, the word test in this particular text comes from the practice of putting metals in a fire, and the purpose is to reveal the dross or the impurities in the metal, to show, to point out what is wrong, what shouldn't be there, what is, what is an issue. Satan is the accuser. He wants to accuse them of not being who they claim to be, not being what they claim to be. So they will begin to doubt, and others will begin to doubt them and question them. And they'll begin to feel guilty about, uh, you know, their, their, their mistakes and their errors and, and their shortcomings, and that ultimately they're going to fail and give up. He wants them to focus on the issues that are not right, point those out so he can destroy them. Now, although what they're about to face is of greater intensity, it's also going to be of greater value to them because Jesus is going to twist the intention of Satan's testing and through it actually make them stronger because when the impurities are revealed and removed, the metal is stronger than it was before. Third, the response. Satan's intention for these Christians is fear. Fear is the most common human reaction to persecution, to threat, to seemingly hopeless realities. We're afraid. The prospect of further suffering will make them fearful. But Jesus says to them, I don't want you to be afraid. Now, the word afraid means to be put to flight. It's the idea that you come upon a flock of birds and you startle them, and in fear, they, they take flight. Tests often come when we least expect them. They startle us. They cause panic in our lives. And Jesus is saying, you need to expect these tests. You need to expect that things that are not good are coming and to be ready and not be surprised by them. Otherwise, you are going to be living in fear. And the fourth thing he talks about is the timing. Jesus uses the phrase for 10 days. It's important for us to understand that this is not to be literally interpreted, interpreted as 10 actual days. Remember in apocalyptic literature, we talked about this in week one, numbers symbolize certain realities. We said the number seven was a number that symbolized completeness. And so when it says the seven spirits, that's the complete spirit, the ultimate spirit, which is the Holy Spirit. 
Well, if you read through the book of Revelation, you'll see that the number 10 is always used in terms of the severity and the intensity of difficulty and evil and darkness and trials. And so it's, a, it's also a figure of speech to communicate that it, it won't last. It's, it's going to come to an end. There's a time limit on it. And so what Jesus is saying to them in, in all of these words is this. It's going to be intense, but it's going to pass. It's going to end. That suffering has its season, and all seasons end. And in the midst of it, if they, uh, you know, if they are, are, are faithful, uh, you know, then they, they, if they can be relied upon, even to the point of death, that's what he's calling them to be, is to be faithful in the midst of it. Then he shifts focus from their future struggles to eternal promises. The suffering and persecution that these Christians will face because of their loyalty to Jesus will not only have an earthly impact, it has eternal impact and implications. And to help them see and understand the bigger picture of what they endure, will endure, he addresses suffering within the larger context. He communicates two key themes to them. And the first one is control. Jesus introduced himself to this church as the first and the last. He was here before the beginning of everything that they know, and he will be here after everything they know. It's a reminder to those who are suffering and experiencing rejection that they belong to the Lord of history, the Lord of creation, the ones who, one whose very words brought into existence what did not already exist. And so he is trying to help them understand that he is in control regardless of how things appear to them, despite the difficulties that they're going through. Satan can bring persecution and testing, but Satan is not ultimately in control. And ultimately, Satan will no longer be allowed to bring persecution and suffering. And Jesus is pointing that out to them. Jesus is in control even though their lives seem out of control. And the second thing he talks about with them is victory. Jesus makes a promise to these believers in Smyrna. And he says this to the one who overcomes, the one who is victorious. They won't be hurt by the second death. Death was a real possibility for these believers. A very real possibility. But the second death is a reference to a lost eternity without God. They may die physically for their faith, but they're guaranteed eternal life. And Jesus has made sure of that. And so Jesus refers to himself as the one who died and came to life again. Literally what Jesus is saying is this, I was a corpse and then I became alive. The Jesus that they are serving had become a corpse but arose from the dead conquering sin and death. And his resurrection is guaranteeing them protection from the second death, from a lost eternity. And he says, my reward is the crown of life. The word crown here is not a a diadem. It's not a kingly crown. The royal crown belongs to one and one only, which is Jesus. The word crown here is a victor's crown, a floral wreath presented to victorious athletes. And so he says, you know, if if you cast off fear, if you endure the hardship, if you remain faithful through it, if you keep your trust in me, the greatest reward is still coming. 
And the greatest reward is eternal. It's not temporary. Truth is, most of us may never face the type of hardship and persecution that we read about in our scripture today in our own lives. We may be familiar with people and circumstances. We may hear reports of that. But most of us will never live our lives facing that type of hardship and persecution. However, that doesn't say that we don't understand what it means to feel crushed under the challenges and burdens of life, under the painful realities of our lives that not only affect our, our lives and our families, but our own spiritual lives as well. There are many in this room that have known pain so intense that at times it feels like it will crush and destroy us. Sometimes it's our marriage or it's our children or our parents or abuse that we've suffered or health concerns that we're struggling through, the loss of someone we love, loss of a job, trying to provide for our family. Sometimes the the weight and the burden of these things is so intense in our lives that it feels like it's crushing us. Pain, suffering, and disappointment are all a part of life for most people. And for some, it is a significant present reality. And I believe there are some truths that we see in this passage that I believe are important for us to understand as we look at this scripture this morning. First is in terms of Satan. It's critically important for us to understand That it is Satan who is ultimately responsible for our pain, our suffering, our hardship, and our despair. Our tendency is to focus on what's right in front of us, to see what is closest to us, being so close to it that we can't see past what it is that's right in front of us. And so for that reason, we tend to link responsibility for what we're going through to the person and the circumstance that is most obvious to us, what and who is right in front of us. But the truth is, behind all of our pain and all of our suffering and all of our hardship and our despair is Satan. And that's not to say, and it's important to hear that, is not to say that people that are a part of our pain and our hardship are not accountable for what they're doing because they certainly are. They certainly are. An unfaithful spouse, a rebellious child, words from a hurtful person, the list goes on. Every person is responsible and accountable for their wrong behavior. Every person is responsible for wrong behavior. No question. But it's important for us to see that the reality is much bigger than those people who inflict the pain. Ultimately, we're not fighting them. We're fighting Satan and evil and sin. Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our struggle is bigger than what and who is right in front of us. And understanding who we are up against is significantly important in fighting our battles. He is the ultimate enemy, and those who have, you know, who we are in contact 
contact with and conflict with are the pawns in his hands. He's using them. But it's bigger than them. And it's important for us to remember that. Secondly, intentions. In John 10.10, Jesus makes it clear what his intentions are in comparison to the thief, the enemy, and Satan, and all that's associated with him. He says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The focus of Satan is making difficult, impacting, painful circumstances that will destroy us and our faith. To destroy those we love. And so here we are, we're born with this purpose, we're born with potential, and Satan wants to rob it from us and those we love and defeat us. And our desire is for the difficult, impacting, painful circumstances that we're facing to come to an end and go away. I mean, who wants that? And we also want that for others. When we hear about the pain and plight of others, we, we pray that it would be taken from them. We, we, we try to our best to make life better for them. And when we're talking to people who are grieving, when we're talking to people who are walking through difficult times, sometimes we feel like we need to say something to make their life better, to make them feel better, to make their circumstances better, to, to lessen their pain. Because we want that to go away in their lives and we want to make their lives better. I've seen this especially when people have lost a loved one and people come up to them feeling this need to make sense of it. And so we say things like, well, we know they're better off. Or God must have wanted them with him. Or everything happens for a reason. Well, these things may be true. These are not the things that most people want and need to hear. They need to hear things like, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm praying for you. I'm here for you if you need me. I care about you. Here's a meal. Is there something practical I can help you with? Our need sometimes to lessen people's pain causes us, without intent, we don't mean to, we're, we have the best of intentions, but it causes us to sometimes make people's fee, pain seem superficial by quoting cliches to them or providing a deep theological explanation to their situation. I speak on behalf of all people who know pain. Please don't do that to us. See, the truth is, the only way that we can really lessen another person's pain if we're the ones that are responsible for it. <laughs> I mean, if you're responsible for another person's pain, yeah, go have at it. You can make it better. But otherwise, we, we stand with them, facing the reality of the pain together, knowing that eventually they're going to make it through, yet most likely will never be the same. A lot of us go through circumstances where we spend the rest of our lives walking with a limp. It's never the same. 
We sometimes go as far as to convince ourselves that a pain-free life is a sign of God's blessing and a pain-filled life filled life is a sign of God's punishment. And then when we start to believe that, we start feeling guilty and we begin questioning our spirituality and our worth. And others may even join in that with us if they believe it as well. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. Not in this world, you could have trouble. Not in this world, you might have trouble. No, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. You will. In 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13, and this is the message, it says, friends, when life gets really difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. Instead, be glad that you're in the very thick of what Christ experienced. This is a spiritual refining process with glory just around the corner. There will be trouble. The enemy is the source. Destruction is the intention. And there's often nothing we can do to stop it. But Jesus takes what the enemy intends for evil and brings good out of it. And Jesus' desire is to take what the enemy is using for pain and shift it in our lives. And thirdly, final say, what we're facing today won't last forever. Some of what you're facing is for a season. And you will see it come to an end. And when it does, you'll have a testimony of the faithfulness and goodness of God to bring you through the hardship to resolution so that when we sing songs like we did this morning, we know what we're referring to. Some of what you're facing could be the reality of your life and will only end when you're with Jesus. That's the truth. But Jesus has the final say. And he values things in terms of eternity. He's not short-sighted. You may die the first death. You may die the first death with a broken heart. But you will not experience the second death when you put your trust in him. Those were difficult words for that church to hear. Those are difficult words for us to hear. That's not what we want to hear. We want to cry and have him come and change it all. But sometimes the truth is, it's not going to get better here. It just isn't. But you can be faithful, and he's going to be faithful, and he's going to bring you through. I'm going to invite our worship team back. How we respond to suffering, our attitudes, our trust, our faith, it says a great deal about our spirituality. There's no question. I don't think we would debate that this morning. If we desire our world to hear the message of the gospel, we got to begin by modeling faith and trust in Jesus in the midst of the hardships of our lives. 
I mean, what does it say to those we want to reach if they see us in the midst of our hardship, quit and question and walk away? The greatest testimony we have is the eyes that are on us when life is at its worst. If we desire our world to hear the message of the gospel, we must demonstrate that we can focus on the big picture. Not just this life, not just what's in front of us, but the bigger picture of who Jesus is and what he's promised and what's at stake. Folks, life is hard. And it may get worse. But in the end, Jesus is faithful. And he brings good out of bad. And he promises us ultimate victory over death. Lord Jesus, please accept that praise and declaration this morning. We love you. And Lord, I pray for each person here as we prepare to leave. I pray especially for those who are feeling crushed under the burden and the pressure of difficult circumstances. And God, I pray that they would be reminded today that you are close, that you know that you're there, that even if things are going to get worse before they get better, it doesn't change their trust in you. And Father, I pray that you would help us today to be you in flesh as we live amongst each other, to be the one to come up to encourage and to strengthen and to to lift the burden and to do practical, tangible things that just encourage people in the midst of circumstances that are seemingly unchanging, yet you find ways to strengthen us in the midst of it. So would you use us as that means to be your heart, your hands, your love, your voice today. Watch over and be with us as we leave. And by your grace, may we, should you tarry, that we could gather again here in a week to celebrate you and your presence and your love and your grace for us. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.